Today we continue our study through the Ten Commandments. We're up to the Eighth Commandment. Hear now the first eight commandments and we'll finish with uh, the, the one we'll study today. So hear now the word of the Lord God's law. God spoke all these words saying, I am Yahweh your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of bondage. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself a carved image, any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or that is in the earth beneath or that is in the water under the earth. You shall not bow down to them nor serve them. For I, Yahweh, your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers upon the children to the third and fourth generation of those who hate me, but showing mercy to thousands, to those who love me and keep my commandments. You shall not take the name of Yahweh, your God, in vain. For Yahweh will not hold him guiltless who takes his name in vain. Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work. But the seventh day is the Sabbath of Yahweh your God. In it you shall do no work. You, nor your son, nor your daughter, nor your male servant, nor your female servant, nor your cattle, nor your stranger who is within your gates. For in six days Yahweh made the heavens and the earth, the sea and all that is in them, and rested the seventh day. Therefore Yahweh blessed the Sabbath day and hallowed it. Honor your father and your mother, that your days may be long upon the land which Yahweh your God is giving you. You shall not murder. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not steal. Thus far the reading of God's word. Let's give thanks together. Father, we pray that you would impress upon our hearts your law and cause us to rejoice in it. In your law, you have given us the ability as people filled with your spirit to flourish in the world that you have given us. Father, cause us by your grace and by your strength to follow our Lord Jesus Christ in keeping your law and loving your law. And we pray that you would write these things in our hearts today. In Jesus' name, amen. People of God, if you have ever had something stolen from you, you know how violating that is, how it feels to have your privacy invaded, the demoralizing effects of someone stripping something from you that you worked hard to obtain. Many years ago, we went on vacation and found when we got back home that our house had been broken into. Somebody just went shopping throughout our house. They took DVDs that they wanted. They took books. They didn't take books. What am I talking about? They didn't take, I'm just listing though. Right. They didn't take books, but they took some things that are really highly sentimental value. And it felt as if we were no longer safe in our homes. We have, I've had car, uh, cars broken into. I've had tools stolen out of my backyard. And I know many of you have lost things in the same way. Whenever that happens, you lose a sense of security and peace and you become paranoid wondering when is the next time that this is going to happen? What are they going to take from me next? Of course, when those things happen, it's all under the sovereignty of God and it's an opportunity for us to stop and reflect on the fleeting nature of material things. God uses these experiences to teach us to invest in things of eternal value. But it isn't selfish and it's not stingy to expect to have use of your own property and to trust that your neighbor isn't going to take your property. If your neighbor has a true need and it's within your power to meet that need, you do it cheerfully but it's up to you to give it. He can't take it from you. He can't force you to give it to him. You, you must not be coerced to do it. That's called stealing. The Bible recognizes 
your right to hold your own property. The Bible recognizes your right to call something your own and to put a boundary around it and say, this is mine and you can't take it from me. Young people who are growing up and are headed to college someday, you need to know that all of your professors are Marxists. Uh, If you're going to a secular college, they are. Uh, If you're going to a Christian college, most of them are. That's just the truth. Your professors are Marxists. And what that means is they don't believe in the value or the existence of personal property or your right to have your personal property. You see, if if they get to call us bigots, I can just call them Marxists and not qualify that. I can just paint with a broad brush. I mean, that's what we're doing now, right? We're just painting with a broad brush. But I think think it's more than just simply a a generality. And you know this because when they start talking about economics, when they start talking about the way things ought to be in the world, they're going to attack first personal property. In fact, that's the first thing um, Marx heads after. That's the first thing he goes after in his communist manifesto is personal property. But the Bible recognizes there is such a thing as personal property. Thus, communism and Marxism is anti-Christian. It's anti-biblical because that's their first tenet. There is no personal property. And yet the Bible upholds and recognizes your right to your own property. To call something my own, to put a boundary around it and say, this is mine and you can't take it from me. I can share it with you. I can give it to you. But if I don't do that, if I don't willfully and willingly give it up, it remains mine. And if you take it away, that's a crime. That's a sin called theft. In the Bible, there is such a thing as private property and private stewardship over property. And God requires us to consider the poor with our property. God requires us to respect our neighbor's property and not to destroy it or take it. God's law establishes boundaries, landmarks. He says, don't move the landmark. If I move the landmark, that's stealing. And in the Eighth Commandment, we find everything that you ever needed to know about economics. Now, I know as soon as I say the word economics, some of your eyes glaze over. Some of you get really interested and you sit up in your chair because that's something that's really interesting to you. But some of you think, oh, that's boring. Well, the word economics is uh, comes from two Greek words, oikos, which means house, and nomos, which means law. Economics is just the rule of the house. It's, It's how we manage our resources. It's how we manage what God has given us. And what's surprising to some is that Jesus and the Bible are not communistic. Some folks point to Acts chapter 2 and they say, well, the church in Jerusalem is something of a commune. They sold a bunch of stuff and they had all this stuff in common. Well, they did. They did sell things and they shared the proceeds with the needy. If you were rich and you had things you could sell that you didn't need and you could help the poor, well, you did that. Property values in Jerusalem are about to drop. And swiftly, it was time to sell and get out of Jerusalem. So many people were selling what they had in Jerusalem and giving the proceeds to the poor. And you read about Ananias and Sapphira. There was one couple in the church in Jerusalem who dedicated a piece of property to the church. They promised it to give to the poor. And then they kept the money when it sold and they didn't give it. When they were caught in their lie, Peter did not, he did not rebuke them for Uh, not treating their property as communal property. That's not what he rebuked them for. He rebuked them for their lie. He told them, in fact, he he articulated this. He said, when your property was in your hand, it was yours to do with whatever you wanted to do with it. 
But when it sold and they had promised the proceeds to the church, then that was the sin. The sin was not in them holding ownership over their property. Peter says that was not it. Their sin was in lying. They promised it and they kept it instead. So Peter affirmed that it was theirs and it did not belong to a collective. So the eighth commandment, you shall not steal, is a prohibition against taking another man's property, whether by coercion or fraud or in any way taking another man's property without his consent. It also prohibits cheating or harming uh, property or destroying the value of a man's property. Theft is not simply taking something that doesn't belong to us. It is that. But it also includes any behavior that defrauds another person or devalues what they have or prohibits them from enjoying freely what belongs to them. All of this is under the heading of theft. And we're going to look at um, Moses' commentary on this commandment later in Exodus and in Deuteronomy, as we've done with, with, with each one of these commandments. We know what these mean, and we know the application of them, not because we sit and think, well, what does stealing mean? Well, what does carrying God's name in vain mean? Moses tells us exactly the application and he gives us case laws and he gives us opportunities to think about biblically what these laws meant, meant and, and we'll go through, we'll go through each of them. Um, now, uh, so, so theft is uh, stealing or devaluing or uh, ruining someone else's opportunity to use their property freely. You may have heard stories from the mission field, missionaries going into unchristianized parts of the world, where one of the challenges for them in preaching the gospel is that in many of these cultures they go to, there's no sense of personal property. If, if someone sees something they want in an unchristian culture, if they see something they want, they take it, whether it's food or equipment or tools or wives, they just take what they want. And the bigger and the stronger you are, the more you can take advantage of others and you can take what they have. But the gospel changes all of that. When the gospel comes and as people submit themselves to Jesus and they submit to themselves to his word, they recognize, and one of the evidences of the, of the introduction of Christianity into a culture is the value of personal property. They recognize boundaries between what is theirs and what is yours. Sadly, as our culture regresses, we're going the opposite direction, we're going away from Christendom, back into paganism, back into tribalism. We see more and more of this idea in play that what is mine is mine, and what's yours is mine. And if you have something that I don't have, then it's an obvious injustice that must be corrected. It's If you have something I don't have, it's not because you worked for it. It's not because God blessed you with it. It's because there's some injustice, and that injustice must be corrected. I can't be happy for you. I can't be happy with what I have. There is some grave unfairness in the fact that you have something that I don't. So I'm going to do one of three things. Here are my choices. I'm going to take it from you, or if I can't take it from you, then I'm going to destroy it so that neither of us can enjoy it. I'm going to vandalize it. Or thirdly, I'm going to get together a bunch of my friends and we're going to convince the government to take it from you and to give it to me. It may take several years, but that's plan C. But you see, it's theft if I take it from you. It's theft if I vandalize it. It's theft if the government takes it from you and gives it to me. If we're going to be obedient to God's law, then we want no part of this culture of institutionalized theft that we that we live in. So God's law, and this is the point of this study for these last several weeks, is for us to get God's law into us and to begin calibrating our thinking, not to the spirit of the age, 
not to our emotions and feelings. We calibrate our thinking to God's law. That's the purpose of this. And so God's law gives us a clear statement on private property. And then we're going to look at that. We're going to look at different forms of theft mentioned in the Bible. And finally, we're going to cover some important principles of restitution, which undergird the law of private property. So first, what does God's word, what does God's law say about private property? To put it simply, if there's no such thing as private property, then there's no such thing as theft. The fact that God says, do not steal, recognizes that you have something that belongs to you that I can't just take. The law, do not steal, recognizes that you have something that belongs to you. Now, ultimately, the earth and all its fullness belongs to the Lord. Several times in the scriptures, we read that very thing. The earth is the Lord's and all its fullness. And that was a prayer of thanksgiving before meals in Israel. You would pray, the earth is the Lord and all its fullness. God has given us everything. In the highest sense, everything belongs to God who created it all. That's, that's in the highest sense. But God has delegated to man the authority, the responsibilities of stewardship and dominion. God gives man things to take care of, and he gives men, some men and some women, more to take care of than others. Abraham was very well off. When he had to get an army together, Abraham got an army of 314 men to go get Lot. And we can assume that those 314 men were probably the youngest and the strongest and the bravest and the most courageous of an entire company. He left the cooks and he left the aged and he left the, the, the teenagers and the young men. He left the women back at the ranch while he got his posse of 314 men to go rescue Lot and to fight with kings. Abraham was incredibly well off. Job was well off. And when God restored Job, remember he restored twice of what he had to begin with. There's no stigma in the Bible attached to wealth that is earned and wealth for which God is thanked. There's no stigma in the Bible attached to that. Proverbs 10 says, the blessing of Yahweh makes one rich and he adds no sorrow with it. If you have worked your behind off to build things and to create things and to start institutions. And if you have given yourself and poured yourself out in hard work and you have things that God has given you to enjoy, there is no guilt that is to attend that. There is no guilt uh, called for in the fact that God has blessed you. You don't have to apologize for that. You don't have to be ashamed of that. That's not the, the godly pursuit of property and wealth is fully legitimate. Now, property and wealth aren't everything. They aren't, property and wealth aren't more important than your soul. It's not more important than other people. They aren't more important than the church, right? We put all this in perspective. But the godly desire to be successful, they want to take dominion over the earth. And that desire to take dominion is often rewarded with more stuff to take dominion over. The godly see this and they give thanks to God for everything and they keep it in perspective. But you don't feel guilty because God has blessed you. You give thanks. You give thanks. The godly know that the only way to wealth is labor. The only way that, that, that you get things to take dominion over is work. Work is the only God-ordained means to wealth and prosperity. And I'm going to say that again in case you tune me out for just a minute. And I want everybody to hear this. Work is the only God-ordained means to wealth and prosperity. The godly don't take shortcuts. The godly don't cheat. They don't gamble. They don't steal. 
Paul tells the Ephesian church, he says, let him who stole steal no longer, but rather let him labor. Don't steal. What's the opposite of that? Labor, working with his hands what is good, that he may have something to give to him who has need. You see the progression there? Stop stealing, start working so that you can give. That's what the godly do. Work is the opposite of theft. And if you aren't working, and if you're not pursuing work, or you're not getting educated in order to work, you are stealing. If you aren't working, if you aren't pursuing work, if you aren't becoming educated in order to work, you are stealing. That's, there, there's no other option. That's, that's it. You're either working or you're stealing. And notice Paul said, work so that you can give. He, God doesn't give these blessings to us to terminate on us. We're not the dead end for God's good gifts. We are a conduit through which blessings flow to the world. We have a right to our property, but not absolute rights. All of our wealth is submitted to God, and then we use it in a righteous way and in a way that considers the poor. And if we had time this morning, I would love to get into the laws of gleaning and the laws of, of landowners to be sure that the poor were considered. We see that in the book of Ruth, where you leave the edges of your field uh, for, the, for the poor to come take whatever they need, or they can come through your vineyard if they need a handful, they can take a handful. There, there, are, um, there are protections and provisions for the poor, even in the wealth that God gives his people. And that's uh, you consider the stranger. You're commanded to consider the, the, the stranger and the widow and the orphan and the underemployed. All of these are built into God's law because the Bible recognizes personal property and that wealth is a gift of God. It's a product of our labor. So that's the first thing. The Bible establishes personal property. Now let's consider a few different forms of theft that God's law talks about. The most basic form of theft is what you see on the playground. It's what you see after church. It's what you see in your backyard and around toddlers all the time. The most basic form of theft, Tommy has the ball. Billy wants the ball. Billy takes the ball. And if he doesn't get it, he throws a fit. And ordinarily, when mom steps into the middle trying to sort it out, who gets scolded? It's usually Tommy who had the ball to to start with. I know you moms are smarter than this and you know better than this. But often, right, it's Tommy who gets scolded, the one who had the ball to begin with. You have to share, Tommy. Well, maybe maybe Tommy does need to learn to, to share. Maybe he does. Maybe Billy needs to learn not to steal. Maybe that's the lesson that needs to be taught here. Billy needs to learn to respect some boundaries. Billy needs to be patient Billy needs to learn early that just because you want something doesn't mean you have a right to it. That's what Billy needs to learn. So there you have a basic form of theft spurred on by covetousness. You have something that I want, and therefore I'm simply going to take it from you. And that is theft. That is stealing. So that's the basic form of theft. But there are other forms. There's another kind of theft that the Bible describes. It's, it's, it's spurred on by envy. You have something that I may not necessarily want or need, I just don't like it when people have things that I don't have. So I'm going to destroy it. I'm going to destroy it so that neither of us can enjoy it. So this is vandalism. Vandalism is theft because you're robbing someone of their full enjoyment of their property. Another form of theft is negligence. It's not that I want your property. I'm not envious of your property. I just don't care enough to treat it 
nicely. I, I don't care enough to go gently with your property, to, to make sure that your property is protected. What does Moses say about this? Listen to Deuteronomy 22. Here's God's word. Listen. You shall not see your brother's ox or his sheep going astray and hide yourself from them. You shall certainly bring them back to your brother. And if your brother is not near you, or if you do not know him, then you shall bring it to your own house and it shall remain with you until your brother seeks it. Then you shall restore it to him. You shall do the same with his donkey. And so shall you do with his garment, with any lost thing of your brother's, which he has lost and you have found, you shall do likewise. You must not hide yourself. You shall not see your brother's donkey or his ox fall down along the road and hide yourself from them. You shall surely help him lift them up again. If you see your brother's animal, if you see your neighbor's animal out or loose, or if you see his garment laying in the middle of the road, what are you called to do? In, in God's law, in a society structured by God's law, you take care and concern for your neighbor's property. You don't see an ox walking down the middle of the road and say, huh, well, it probably belongs to somebody down there. I don't care. What do we got to do today? And you think, no, there's something. There's my neighbor's property, and it requires me. It's my duty God has ordained this moment for me to protect my neighbor's property. And to be a faithful brother and to be a faithful man, I have to be concerned with his garment or his ox or his donkey or whatever, whatever it is. We are required by God's law to look out for our brother's property. I don't have any donkeys. I don't have any oxen. I've got cars. I've got instruments. I've got stuff that are part of my household, We've got appliances, we have, we have children. If we're, uh, if anything that, that is part of my house is going astray, I need your help to keep it contained. I need your help to watch out for it. I need you to, to tread nicely with my property as I will tread kindly and gently with your property. If we see our brother's property destroyed or lost or stolen or devalued in any way, if we see our brother's property abused and we don't do anything to fix it or stop it, we are guilty of breaking the eighth commandment. We're to look out for each other. Uh, Saul, King Saul, he was a faithful son. We know that. Because the first time we see King Saul, what is he doing? He's looking for his uncle's donkeys. He's on a trip and he's looking for his uncle's property. Jesus is a faithful son and Jesus is a faithful brother because he comes to gather in the lost sheep of the tribe of Israel. This is that law. This is that law in effect in these various places in the Bible. And if you are a faithful son, if you are a faithful brother, if you're a faithful neighbor, then you will be kind and you will go gently with your brother's property, and you will see that his property and his things aren't being abused. Another form of theft is fraud. Leviticus 19 says, you shall not steal, nor deal falsely, nor lie to one another. You shall not defraud your neighbor, nor rob him. Dealing falsely, God's word says, is theft. Dealing falsely is stealing. Fraud is dealing with other people's deep dealing with them dishonestly to gain an advantage over them and to rob them of what is rightfully theirs. If you tell someone that you're going to pay them a certain amount of money, you do it and you do it on time. The Bible even required Israel to pay wages promptly at the end of the day. If you have day laborers, you pay them at the end of the day. Don't invent reasons to withhold your employees' wages week after week. If they've worked for it, if then that's their money. It's not yours anymore. Every day that you keep it, you're stealing from them. 
Uh, there are some fast food restaurants. I absolutely love this. I don't love a whole lot about the fast food industry, but I love this is that there are now restaurants because they have the ability to immediately transfer funds for poor working people. They're able to pay them at the end of the day for their work. That's entirely, I don't, they don't, I don't know even if they think that's biblical or if they even thought through it, or maybe there's a Christian somewhere in that organization who's thought through this, but it's entirely biblical to pay people at the end of the day. Well, lots of us can get by. Lots of us who are in salary, we get paid every month and that works out just fine. That's just that's just perfect. But with the poor and with the day laborer, God requires them to be paid at the end of the day. Uh, don't defraud them. Fraud is sneaking around and manipulating numbers to make yourself money off of other people's ignorance. It's to take advantage of people's trust and the faith that they've put in you by robbing them in ways that they can't see. That's, that's fraud. That's dealing falsely and that's forbidden under the eighth commandment. Here's another one. Usury. See, there are all these protections. So when you heard me say that there's such a thing as private property in the Bible, you may think, oh man, that's a cold, hardcore capitalist who hates the poor. I bet he wipes his shoes on the backs of the poor. I mean, you think that's, but God's law doesn't treat the poor and the stranger and the orphan and the widow that way. In fact, because there is such a thing as private property, then we can protect and love and care for the poor. And so there are these laws and uh, these ordinances in God's law about usury. Usury is taking advantage of the poor and charging them exorbitant interest rates just because you can. If you go to any poor neighborhood in the United States, you find three things. Pawn shops, payday loan uh, brokers who who charge exorbitant amounts uh, for uh, for these predatory loans. They market aggressively market these predatory loans, and you'll find car lots that sell terrible vehicles to people with bad credit at at incredible interest rates. Those three things: uh, payday lenders, pawn shops, and used car lots that that do this thing. These are businesses who prey upon the poor and they prey upon the ignorant. You you go to a college campus when all the freshmen arrive and who's there? The credit card companies have all of their tables lined up with their booths ready to take advantage. The poor and the weak are, are in a position to be taken advantage of and lenders are in a strong position. And usury exploits the situation and God told Israel not to charge their poor brother's interest at all. This is from Exodus 22, listen to this. If you lend money to any of my people who are poor among you, you shall not be like a money lender to him. You shall not charge him interest. If you ever take your neighbor's garment as a pledge, you shall return it to him before the sun goes down. For that is his only covering. It is his garment for his skin. What will he sleep in? And it will be when he cries out to me, I will hear for I am gracious. In other words, your brother's difficulties are not an opportunity for you to make money. That's what God's law says. God provided a different way of caring for the poor. Interest-free loans that the lender voluntarily gives, which the which were forgiven after seven years. You can look up the, the law of Jubilee in Deuteronomy chapter 15. You can read all about how that was handled. But you don't put people in debt indefinitely. It's a short-term loan, and they have time to pay it. But if they can't, 
If they're not able to, it's forgiven. And the lender is going to be okay. Over that seven years, God has blessed the lender. He's given them increase. He's given them life and rain and sunshine. The lender has helped his poor brother and God will bless him for, for that. God's law doesn't pro- prohibit or forbid all interest. It, it doesn't say that. Remember, Jesus told the parable of the talents where you, you put the things you have to work and you get a return on your investment. Jesus told that parable. You can loan money to businesses. You can loan money to entrepreneurs with the expectation that their successes are going to bring you a return as well. You invest in businesses to share in their profitability. That's not forbidden in God's law, but God does consider charging interest to the poor theft. You don't do that. One more, dishonest scales are a form of theft. A standard of weights and measures for honest commerce is necessary. You must have a standard of weights and measures. My definition of a gallon must be your definition of a gallon if I'm selling you milk. If I'm selling you a gallon of milk and the thing that I have called a gallon only has three quarts in it and I sell you that and you think you bought a gallon, well then I'm lying to you and I'm stealing from you. Proverbs 11 reads, dishonest scales are an abomination to Yahweh, but a just weight is his delight. Any effort to misrepresent something that you're selling to make it look better or more functional than it actually is, to lead someone to buy something that isn't going to work for them, these are all forms of theft. And by the way, inflation is a form of dishonest scales, and therefore inflation is theft. Every time they turn those check printers on in Washington, the money in your wallet is worth less than it was before they hit print right? And, and uh, theft is theft. It doesn't matter who, who does it. So those are just a handful of examples that the Bible gives of breaking the eighth commandment. But what happens then, and this is the last thing, what happens when we intentionally or unintentionally are guilty of breaking this law? Whether we purposely defraud or deceive or reach out our hand and take something that belongs to our neighbor, or we neglectfully, we accidentally damage his property. God's law requires restitution. This is an important, this is a critical principle that we must recover, restitution. Listen to Exodus 22. If a man steals an ox or a sheep and slaughters it or sells it, he shall restore five oxen for an ox and four sheep for a sheep. If a man causes a field or vineyard to be grazed and let loose his animal and it feeds on another man's field, he shall make restitution from the beast of his own field and the best of his own vineyard. If fire breaks out and catches in thorns so that stacked grain or standing grain or field is consumed, he who kindled the fire shall surely make restitution. If a man delivers to his neighbor money or articles to keep and it is stolen out of the man's house, if the thief is found, he shall pay double. If the thief is not found, then the master of the house shall be brought to the judges to see whether he has put his hand to his neighbor's goods." There are all these other ordinances regarding what happens when you have rented your property out and it gets damaged or whether you loan something out, you loan a tool and it gets stolen. But the principle is the same in every case. You are responsible for restoring your neighbor to a position better than what he began with if his property is damaged while in your care. If you are responsible in any way for stealing or damaging another man's property, it is your duty 
to put him in a better position than he was before. If I steal one ox, I owe you five. If I steal your money, I owe you double. The point is to not simply return what was stolen, but to deter theft by making it hurt a whole lot. It's going to hurt to restore you to something better and to put the defrauded person in a much better place before the harassment and the hassle of losing his property began. He is The defrauded one is compensated for his lost time and his lost opportunity. Restitution is a forgotten value in our culture, and there are two factors that work against it. There are two attitudes that work against it. The first is that the state has the attitude that everything ultimately belongs to the state. The earth is the state's and the fullness thereof. Everything belongs to the state. And if someone steals from you, their crime is primarily against the state. And so their penalty is paid to the state. So if someone is driving drunk and they smashes into your parked car that's sitting in your driveway, if they don't have insurance, you're out of luck. Now, they may go to jail if they're caught, they may go sit around for a while, but good luck getting any restitution for your vehicle. And when they get out of jail, what do we say? Well, they have repaid their debt to society. Well, they didn't wreck society's car, they wrecked my car, and I'm out of a car. Now, we have to have insurance to cover restitution ourselves. We have to cover our own restitution. The state is not going to put them to work and give their wages to you until you're in a better position than when you started. But here's what the state will do. They will put a black mark on their record, and they carry that black mark for the rest of their life as a DUI or a felon or or whatever else. You see, if we really practice restitution, both the violator and the violated would be so much better off. Once the violator paid off his debt, it's over. You're free. You're forgiven. It's done. And then the violated is restored as well. The violated has their property restored in restitution. But that's the first thing that works against us. The state doesn't allow, the state doesn't have a system for restitution. The second, in in most cases, sometimes I I understand that there are exceptions, but in most cases, uh, restitution is not part of the conversation. The second faulty perspective that works against us and, and works against restitution is a misunderstanding of what forgiveness is. And Christians are the most guilty of this. We started this. We do this. We think forgiveness is something that simply can be handed out, in fact, ought to be handed out, whether or not there's ever been repentance. Is it possible to forgive without repentance? Well, let me ask this question. Does God forgive sin? Does he atone for sin without repentance? Does God simply wipe away sins without any restitution, without any kind of atonement for those sins? Well, if that were the case, if God just simply wiped his hand, just waved his hand and said, everything's everything's forgiven, everything's done. If God did that, then Jesus wouldn't have had to die, right? God requires payment for sins. This is why Jesus goes to the cross to atone, to pay for the debt of sin. Thankfully, the blood of Jesus is a sufficient payment for our sins. But we have to take a hold of that forgiveness by repentance and faith. God doesn't wave his hand over humanity and just declare everyone forgiven. Yeah, Jesus doesn't have to pay for our sins. Jesus doesn't have to go to the cross Uh, Yeah, it's all right. It's all right. And God doesn't do that. And therefore, we are not expected to either. Now, you have, you can let 
love cover a multitude of sins. You can reckon other people forgiven if they repent and they're truly sorry. And the thing, the damage that was done to you, you think I can, I can cover this. I can take care of it. I'll pay the restitution. I will pay the, to, to get the thing fixed or, or, or repair the thing. You don't have to be bitter and angry all the time uh, when you're sinned against because God surely isn't. And we are always ready to forgive someone upon their repentance. But the point I'm making here is that requiring in, uh, restitution is not mean. Requiring restitution is not cruel. It's not mean. If someone wrongs you and you can't simply let it go, if you can't simply cover it yourself, you don't have to wave your hand over it and say all is forgiven while you go away muttering under your breath that it's not really forgiven, that it's not really fixed and don't mean it. This is the way it works. Someone damages your stuff and you don't want to be ugly. So what do you say? Eh, it's all right. It's all right. But it's not all right. And you get bitter and you get angry and it damages the relationship. If I damage your property... It is my duty to put you in a better position than you were before to compensate you for your inconvenience and your loss of time and the use of your property. And living with our brothers in harmony requires us to take initiative when we mess up, to take initiative, to put them in a better place, even when it hurts, even when it's really inconvenient, so that we don't give any place for bitterness or division or bad blood, but to make things better. We want, when there's, when there's damage done, when things get broken, when, when there are transgressions, when there are offenses, when there are injuries, we want to actually come out of that in a better place than where we started. And that's what these laws of restitution are all about. Why do you give a man five oxen when you stole one? Why do you give him four sheep when you stole one? It's to put the whole relationship in a much better place than where you started. We want everybody to be better off. Here again, God's laws show us a vision of an orderly society which is led by God's people. God's people are not takers. We're not thieves. We don't defraud. We're not envious. We're not vandals. We don't take advantage of the poor. We give, we work, we build up, we glorify, we enhance, we edify. We're honest even when it hurts. And we protect and we defend the poor. And when we mess up, we make things right. This is what God's law teaches. And this is the law that Jesus fulfilled when he came. This is the law that Jesus obeyed. What did Jesus say? The thief comes to steal and kill and destroy. I came that they may have life and have it abundantly. Jesus comes to glorify, not to defraud and not to steal. And if we're like Jesus, if we're following Jesus, then we come to give and to share and to build up and to take dominion, not to tear down and not to take and not to ruin and not destroy. Because we follow Jesus, we are people of productivity and work and everywhere we go and everything we touch is improved, it's not destroyed. That is one thing, that is one way that it means to follow Jesus. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we ask once again that you would write these laws on our hearts, that we would be people who out of love for you and love for the incredible redemption that you have worked out for us, the salvation that you have worked out for us through Jesus, that we now out of love respond in gratitude by obeying your law. And so Father, help us to walk in this way. We pray in Jesus' name, amen.